This is a recording of the teachings of Sylvanus, a little-known gem from Nagamati, by Dennis Newton, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Dennis Newton. Abstract. Scholars have recently suggested that the teachings of Sylvanus, a text from Nagamati Codex 7, is the product of several authors, with the earliest portion dating to the late 1st or early 2nd century, and the latest portion to the 3rd or early 4th century. Sylvanus's provenance, therefore, allows this single document to serve as a potential microcosm evidencing the, evidencing the change and alteration of early Christian thought and doctrine. Latter-day Saints have long contended that the restored gospel is more closely aligned with the earliest strains of Christianity vis-a-vis the creedal form. Through the lens of Sylvanus, Latter-day Saint and Calvinist positions are evaluated relative to the early and late Sylvanus authors and are found to be most compatible with the early and late portions of the text, respectively. As a teenager, my first exposure to the Nagamati text came via a series of Einar Erikson audio tapes that my mother purchased. I still remember his vivacious voice, reading tantalizing snippets from ancient texts and favorably comparing them to aspects of the restored gospel of Christ. He would always conclude his presentation with the question, where did Joseph Smith get this? After hearing about all of these remarkable discoveries, I eagerly anticipated the impending wave of confirmatory evidences from ancient hidden texts that would definitively prove the miracle of the restoration. It is 40 years later, and Erickson's prediction of a tidal wave of faith-affirming scholarship has yet to emerge. At least it has not emerged from the sands near Nagamati. While these texts have had an intensely dramatic effect on New Testament scholarship, they have had relatively little impact upon members of the restored Church of Christ, especially its lay members. Why is this? One reason is that many of the Nagamati texts were produced and cherished by Gnostics, groups whose writings and beliefs were directly attacked by early Church Fathers. For example, Arrhenius famously designated Gnostic writings as, quote, an abyss of madness and blasphemy against Christ, unquote. While the Nagamati corpus has proven a treasure trove for secular scholars, traditional Christians have generally dismissed the documents as Gnostic heresy and doctrinally trivial. This line of argument was the essence of the evangelical response to Erickson's audio series. Melanie Layton shares the argument that the early Christian Latter-day Saint similarities highlighted by Erickson, quote, do not confirm, they condemn, if one considers the source of the parallels, unquote. For similar reasons, Latter-day Saint scholars have also preached caution when reading the Nagamati text. Quote, in a particular document, we may see ideas standing side by side, which, on the one hand, are very similar to Latter-day Saint notions and, on the other hand, diverge strikingly. Because of this situation, attempts to establish authenticity on the basis of LDS parallels in such apocryphal literature should be tempered and, evidenced, and evidence carefully weighed, 
Unquote. The Nagamati texts were hidden by Christians near the ancient Egyptian settlement of Chinopskin. No one is exactly sure who hid these texts, although some scholars have assumed that a small faction of nearby Christian monks desired to preserve these texts as groups considered heretical were actively persecuted by the church establishment in the 4th century. Included in the 13 uh, papyrus codices are 46 different texts of which 31 were previously unknown to scholars. The wide-ranging corpus has, quote, source material on early Christian, Neoplatonic, Hermetic, Sethian, and Valentinian thought, unquote. All of the texts are believed to have been originally composed in Greek and translated into Coptic. In contrast to the time when Erickson was recording his audio tapes, today's scholars are hesitant to apply the label of Gnostic to any one particular historical group or set of beliefs. In fact, quote, the term Gnostic itself is an embattled term, unquote. According to Marvin Meyer, the four groups of texts from the Nagamati scriptures are those of, quote, one, Thomas Christianity, two, the Sethian school of Gnostic thought, three, the Valentinian school of Gnostic thought, and four, Hermetic religion, unquote. Often, there is little commonality among texts that fall within these groupings, thus supporting further possible divisions. Meyer concludes that, quote, scholars today more often analyze each one separately or in relationship with contemporaneous Jewish, Christian, and pagan sources, unquote. This is the approach that I will take in this paper. While most of the documents cover at, discovered at Nagamati espouse either some variation of a Gnostic or Hermetic worldview, there are some very interesting exceptions. Berger A. Pearson argues that nine of the texts are either from very early sources, e.g. portions of Plato's Republic, or are clearly non-Gnostic because their content argues against Gnostic positions. Most of the texts from the Thomas School fall into this category, as does the text of interest for this paper, The Teachings of Sylvanus, hereafter referred to as Sylvanus a text that is sourced independent of Meyer's major four schools and that is demonstrably non-Gnostic. The fourth of five texts in Codex Number 7, Sylvanus is extant only in this Nagamati Codex, although there is a short Coptic fragment preserved in the British Museum, originally attributed to St. Antony, which scholars now believe is either a quotation from Sylvanus or from an earlier unknown text that both sourced. The Teachings of Sylvanus Compared with other writings from the Nagamati Library, such as the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocryphon of John, Sylvanus has received scant attention from biblical scholars and lay readers alike. So I will provide a short introduction to Sylvanus here, followed by a brief source analysis. The Writings of, quote, second-rate theologians, unquote. Why spend time with a text written by, quote, second-rate theologians, quote, unquote, as scholar Ralph von den Broek labeled them? 
because Sylvanus is a document unique to the entire Christian corpus. First, it is one of the few non-Gnostic texts included in the Nagamati Library. Second, it is reflective of Jewish wisdom traditions, which makes it a, quote, most important witness to the Gentilic wisdom literature of early Christianity, unquote. Third, the text is a product of at least two and possibly more authors who are likely time-distanced by at least a century and possibly more. Fourth, while it is generally agreed that Sylvanus was compiled in the 4th century, portions of the text may be, quote, as early as the 1st century, unquote, which would make these portions contemporary with several books in the New Testament canon, the Gospel of Thomas, the Epistle of, Bar- the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Didoc. Quote, although its Greek, its Greek original could be as late as the early 4th century, it clearly incorporates much older traditions and can therefore shed light on the development of Alexandrian Christianity. Christian theology from the second or even the first century, unquote. Finally, and most surprisingly, there seems to be some tension between the authors of the early and late portions of Sylvanus. As Vandenbroek states, quote, it must be doubted whether the man who wrote the theological and Christological passages was also the original author of the rest of the work. The ethical parts in particular can contain ideas which are difficult to reconcile with those of the theological portions, unquote. All five of these characteristics should make Sylvanus of interest to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Faithful Latter-day Saint scholars have long argued that Latter-day Saint teachings are restored from the original teachings of Christ and that creedal Christianity is a manifestation of fundamental alterations to some of the foundational doctrines of early Christianity. Examples include the Godhead, creation ex materia, divine embodiment, deification, etc. A common argument involves comparing the earliest sourced, earliest sourced canonical and non-canonical Jewish and Christian texts and highlighting similarities between Latter-day Saint doctrine and these early texts, by way of contrast, Latter-day Saint scholars argue that creedal Christianity is better aligned with later Christian texts and writings. Therefore, the dichotomous nature of Sylvanus provides an interesting microcosm to test our approach. Within this one document are at least two voices, one early and one late which can be juxtaposed to illustrate the dramatic change in Christian thought across just a few centuries. Sylvanus was most likely a product of the Alexandrian Christian community. After the crucifixion, Christianity slowly grew among the Jews of the diaspora. Many of these communities were influenced by a specific apostle or teacher, the most prominent being Peter, James, John, Thomas, and Paul. An influential, uh, influential, boy, an influential community of Jewish Christians took hold in Alexandria with traditions crediting the founding to either Mark or James. 
Pearson argued that, quote, the earliest Christianity in Egypt, i.e. Alexandria, was Jewish, and that the earliest Christians in Egypt would have been an integral part of the Jewish community in Alexandria. That community, as is well known, came to a brutal end with a catastrophic revolt of the Jews against Rome, 115 to 117 CE, unquote. Although Walter Bauer has argued that, quote, the original and most dominant form of Christianity in Alexandria was heretical, um, was, um, heretical and specifically Gnostic, unquote, more recent, more recent scholars have demonstrated that what Bauer calls Gnostic Christianity developed after the second century, and that it was only one of six distinct forms of Christianity to, to be found in Alexandria. In addition to the Nagamati texts, this vibrant community of theological thought, of, of theological thought produced many well-known Jewish and Christian thinkers and writers, including Philo, Apollos, Oregon, Clement of Alexandria, Arius, and Athanasius. So who was the named author Sylvanus? Although it is possible that the title refers to a teacher active in Alexandria during the 4th century, it is most likely that Sylvanus was meant to recall one of Paul's companions, either in 2 Corinthians or 1st or 2nd Thessalonians. While the Sylvanus text has proven difficult to date, the scholarly consensus is best represented by, represented by Pearson, who argues that, quote, the tractate consists of two main parts, unquote. The first part, quote, may be as early as the first century, unquote, and the second part may be as, quote, late as the fourth century, unquote. The final document was like, likely compiled in the first few decades of the fourth century from the two aforementioned sources. A brief source analysis. Because a multi-author Sylvanus text is critical to our analysis, it is worth taking a brief moment to discuss why scholars have concluded that Sylvanus comes from at least two sources. Since, since Codex 7 was first published, there has been relatively little scholarly interest in Sylvanus, um, with only a handful of available English translations and few publications focused solely upon the text. When Sylvanus was first translated with Codex 7, scholars assumed a single author, quote, unified whole, unquote, with a late 3rd or 4th century date of composition. As scholars paid more attention to the text, they noticed a dichotomy between the first and second halves of the book. As early as 1970, the most active Sylvanus scholar, Jean Zandi, had divided the text into two parts, but remained a supporter of single authorship until his death in 1991. Malcolm Peel, the author of the influential 1996 Brill translation of Sylvanus, still assumed a single author at the time of this publication, but addressed the issue of the text's duality by speculating that it was caused by, quote, a compilation over time of notes by the author, unquote. The pioneering work of two other early scholars questioned this unified whole assumption, 
and suggested multi-authors or sources. Wolf Peter Funk demonstrated that the portion of Sylvanus attested by the St. Anthony fragment found in the British Museum was from an older independent wisdom text. This opened the possibility of multiple text sources in Sylvanus vis-a-vis the unified whole theory. Thus, William R. Schodel, who wrote the Sylvanus summary for the Anchor Bible Dictionary, notes in 1992 that the text, quote, leaves the impression of being a, being a collection of diverse materials and probably represents the end product of a long literary development, unquote. Nevertheless, as scholars continued to attempt to date Sylvanus, they began to realize the two parts of the work seemed to best fit in two different time frames. Ralph von de Broek was the first to try and resolve this conundrum, and as early as 1986 argued, quote, the teachings of Sylvanus were composed in the first decades of the fourth century, though partly based on much older material, unquote. He identified that the ethical portion of the narrative fit a second century date and argued that the theological portion had some dependency upon Athanasius, which would date it as late as the 4th century. This led him to conclude multiple authorship of Sylvanus. Quote, All this points to the 2nd and 3rd decades of the 4th century as the most probable date of composition or per- perhaps better compilation of the teachings of Sylvanus. For it must be doubted whether the man who wrote the theological and Christological passages was also the original author of the rest of the work. The ethical parts in particular contain ideas which are difficult to reconcile with those of the theological portions. I can only conclude that the materials contained in the teachings of Sylvanus come from different times and represent different stages of early Alexandrian theology. Whoever Sylvanus may have been, he was more a compiler than an original author. Unquote. By 2007, when Pearson authored the Sylvanus introduction for a new translation of the Nagamati Corpus, he references the history of Sylvanus scholarships and gives the most up-to-date conclusion regarding its authorship. Quote, Although attempts have been made to understand the tractate, as a unified whole, it is clearly an agglutinative text that has grown over a considerable period of time. The basic and oldest stratum material stems from Hellenistic Jewish wisdom and philosophy, such as was characteristic of first century Alexandrian Judaism. The most important exemplars of this variety of Judaism are the wisdom of Solomon and the writings of Philo Judaeus. Of course, the teachings of Sylvanus, as we know it, is clearly a Christian writing, parts of which may be as early as the first century and other parts as late the early fourth century. Unquote. Because so little scholarly attention has been paid to Sylvanus, there has been little critical debate about the Schodel, Vandenbroek, and Pearson position concerning multiple Sylvanus sources. There are a number of compelling reasons for multiple authorship. The sharp contrast in style between the ethical wisdom teachings in the first portion 
and the philosophical and theological ones of the second is self-evident. The two parts also reflect the writings and teachings of those from different Alexandrian time periods. The first part echoes Philo of Alexandria, Jewish wisdom texts, and Stoicism, while the second seems to convey a Neoplatonism, Oregon, Clement, and possibly even Athanasius. Quote, The tractate consists of two main parts. The first part is devoted largely to moral philosophy and can be regarded as a Jewish compendium of moral teaching influenced by Stoicism and Platonism, uh, to which Christian features have been added. The Christian editions consist largely of crediting Jesus Christ as the source of the teacher's wisdom. The second part is more explicitly theological and reflects the theological and Christological teachings of the Alexandrian teachers Clement and Oregon. Unquote. Zandi's pioneering work on Sylvanus demonstrated significant dependencies between the text and Alexandrian Christian fathers Clement and Oregon. Examples include A. Only through Christ, the Logos, can the true likeness and image of God be known. B. Christ as personified wisdom. C. Presenting an allegorized version of the temple cleaning. D. Christ as the true vine that yields the true wine. And E. The contention that God is not locatable in space. By my count, Peel, summarizing Zandi's work, presents 15 examples of textual affinities with Clement or Oregon. And each and every one of these examples relates to something in the second part of Sylvanus. No scholar, to my knowledge, has, a def- has identified a directly dependent relationship between a passage in the first part of Sylvanus and Clement, Oregon, or any of the later Alexandrian fathers. The two parts of Sylvanus also exhibit noticeably different awareness and usage patterns of scriptural texts, particularly the New Testament. With such an early proposed composition time frame, it is unclear how aware the author of the first portion of Sylvanus was of the entire New Testament library. The Hebrew Bible and Jewish wisdom texts are as likely to be referenced in this part of Sylvanus as the New Testament. And, importantly, there are no direct New Testament citations, and only a small number of, quote, possible or general echoes, unquote. For example, there is some commonality between Sylvanus 88, 15, and 16, which reads, quote, Live in Christ, and you will obtain treasure in heaven, unquote. And New, Te- and New Testament passages that also reference treasure in heaven, like Mark and Luke. But it is difficult to definitively determine which, if any, of the books of the New Testament the first author might or might not have had access to. This is to be expected if, as the multiple source argument suggests, the first portion of Sylvanus was written prior to the canonization of the New Testament text. In an introduction to non-canonical Christian texts dating to the second century, William Schneemelcher provides a useful summary of the historical context that is applicable to the early portion of Sylvanus. 
Quote, it must be observed that the canon of the New Testament only developed in the course of the second century and that for a long time its limits were still uncertain. Also, we can scarcely assume that all communities immediately possessed a complete exemplar of the New Testament. Probably only separate writings, which are regarded as authoritative, were available. For our literature, we may at any rate determine that for the most part, it originated without any reference to a canon of the New Testament, unquote. On the other hand, the author of the second portion either directly or indirectly references nearly all of the books in the New Testament canon. A complete analysis of biblical references within the Sylvanus text demonstrates sizable and noticeable differences with regard to how the two, portion, the two portions of the text utilize the New Testament. Of the 85 biblical references in the second part, most of these, 72, refer to a New Testament text, and many are direct citations of New Testament writings. In contrast, the first part of Sylvanus only has 23 biblical echoes, and only 12 of these echo the New Testament. In the second part, there are references or echoes to all but four of the books in the New Testament. Late in the second part of Sylvanus, the Apostle Paul is specifically mentioned by name, quote, but he who makes himself like God is one who does nothing unworthy of God, according to the statement of Paul, who has become like Christ, unquote. This is a direct reference to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. The, quote, scripture of God, unquote, is also referenced in a way that likely refers to the New Testament as scripture and not just the Hebrew Bible. The two authors also have different vernaculars, lexicons, and word usage patterns. The first author refers to God only ten times, three of which are specific titles that writers of the Hebrew Bible favor, like Most High God and Holy Father. On the other hand, the second author mentions God often, 57 times, but rarely gives an accompanying title. The second author also refers to the Lord, while the first author does not. The second author mentions the name of Christ much more frequently, five mentions versus 33 mentions. But only the first author ever uses the proper name Jesus. The first part includes the term evil one as a reference for the devil in a manner similar to Philo's usage, while the second part uses the term adversary. But the most compelling evidence for the conclusion that Sylvanus has early and late sources is that the first and second part's teachings are not a unified whole. In fact, they often appear divergent. These differences and the how they relate to the restored teachings of Joseph Smith are the focus of the remainder of this paper. The teachings of two Sylvanuses. When approaching the Nagamati text, CM scholar CM Tuckett offers good advice about historical context that I will try to adhere to whenever possible. Quote, nobody writes in a vacuum. Every literary text presupposes various traditions. The use of language itself 
is limited by sets of conventions concerning the meaning and use of words and phrases. Behind every writer, there are many different influences. These include linguistic traditions concerning the meaning of the language used, social traditions reflecting the social structures within which the writer works, and, in the case of a religious text, religious traditions presupposed by the author. Unquote. Our focus will be upon examining the differences between the two parts of Sylvanus. However, it should be noted that the majority of the two portions of the text display a number of ethical and theological commonalities. One example of such a similarity is the text's unified teachings about deification. Both the early and late sources comment on the divine nature of man, and each are doctrinally consistent with the prevailing beliefs of their respective time periods. Below is an early Sylvanus passage on deification, followed by a late Sylvanus passage. Early, quote, Do not bring grief and trouble to the divine which is within you, but when you foster it, request of it that you remain pure and become self-controlled in your soul and body. Then you will become a throne of wisdom and a member of God's household. Unquote. Late. Quote, he who has exalted man became like man, not in order to bring God down to man, but to make man like God. Unquote. The topic of deification, or theos, does not appear to have been heavily disputed in Alexandria during Christianity's formative years. Thus, the understandable agreement between the early and late parts of Sylvanus. In fact, the latter author seems to teach Theos more explicitly than the early author who merely implies it. Van de Broek points out compelling similarities between the late Sylvanus passage and the words of a 4th century Alexandrian contemporary, Athanasius, who penned the famous statement, quote, For he became man, that we might become God. Unquote. Another interesting teaching supported in both parts of Sylvanus is self-assessment and self-determination. Quote, in Sylvanus's view, human nature is not weakened by original sin. Unquote. Instead, the source of evil is, quote, blindness of mind or ignorance, unquote. There are also many individual subjects addressed by one part of the text without corresponding commentary in the other, many of which are intriguing to Latter-day Saint readers and warrant additional investigation. For example, in an early passage, the son is told, quote, when you were born again, you came to be inside the bridal chamber, and you were illuminated in mind, unquote. Contextually, the text implies the bridegroom to be Christ. The bridal chamber and, and the bridal chamber analogy was quite popular in later Nagamati texts. The second part of Sylvanus also almost casually refers to Christ's descent into the underworld and provides some intriguing details. Late. Quote, How many likenesses did Christ take on because of you? Although he was God, he was found among men as a man. He descended to the underworld. He released the children of death, 
They were in travail, as the scripture of God has said, and he sealed up the very heart of it, unquote. With regards to topics like these, where there is no apparent disagreement between the two parts of Sylvanus, Latter-day Saint readers will find useful and familiar teachings from both the early and, and later portions. The second author, in particular, cites the New Testament significantly more often than the first author, and echoes many of John's and Paul's teachings about Christ. Certainly, Latter-day Saint readers will find doctrinal commonality with many of these passages, especially as Christ's divinity is emphasized, e.g., quote, He is the light, the angel, and the good shepherd, unquote. But our interest in this paper lies in those instances where the first and second parts seem to disagree theologically, and our hypothesis is that Latter-day Saint readers will be more comfortable with the first author's position on these specific issues vis-a-vis the second. I also hypothesize that Protestant Christians, as as represented by the archetype of Calvinism for this paper, will be more comfortable with the writings of the second author on these same issues. To determine the Latter-day Saint and Calvinist positions, I have used, one, the Gospel Topics portion of the Latter-day Saint website, and two, a theological guide written by Calvinist scholars on the occasion of the 500th anniversary of John Calvin's birth. The point of this paper is not to create a caricature straw man of the positions of either faith. Rather, if I have done my work correctly, practitioners of both traditions should nod their heads affirmatively, affirmatively <laughs> should nod their heads affirmatively at these comparisons. While scholars have commented on the dichotomous nature of the Sylvanus text, and several have identified some of the differences, no paper that I know of has suggested that the latter author was purposely commenting on or even correcting the early author. Given the extent of topical duplication between the two parts, I suggest that setting the record straight was actually a motivating factor for the second Sylvanus author, particularly in relation to topics such as the Godhead, the nature of God, and especially the personification of the divine feminine and wisdom. The Nature of God Latter-day Saint View Quote, God the Father is the supreme being in whom we believe, whom we worship, and to whom we pray. He is the ultimate creator, ruler, and preserver of all things. He is perfect, has all power, and knows all things. He has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. As children of God, we have a special relationship with him, setting us apart from all his other creations. We should seek to know our Father in heaven. Unquote. Calvinist view. Quote, God is not imaginable. All the things we invent are idols of the mind, products of our own imagination. For God ever remains like himself and is not a specter or phantasm to be transformed according to our desires. It is a fact, however, that the mind of the fallen man remains a perpetual factory of idols and false imaginations of God, 
so that he is always projecting his own event inventions or figments upon God. Unquote. Sylvanus is written in the form of a Jewish wisdom text similar to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the non-biblical book of, book of Wisdom and the Wisdom of Sirach. It includes common wisdom elements such as A, a father addressing a son, B, the giving of life advice and common sense sayings, C, the contrasting between the wise and the foolish, and D, a focus on obtaining wisdom. Both the first and second portions of the text utilize this basic structure. God is mentioned 11 times in the first portion of Sylvanus, and many of these mentions are in the context of his role as a member of the Godhead. But there are some interesting themes that bear detailed examination. First, the early author often adds adjectival uh, titles that modify the word God. <laughs> Thus he refers to God the Holy Father, quote, your first father God, unquote, and God the, quote, exalted one. This latter title is interesting and brings the Hebrew name El Elyon, or, quote, most high God, unquote, to mind. Quote, the title Elyon is an old epitaph of El, unquote. Quote, in the earliest Hebrew pantheon, the head god was referred to variously as El, Elohim, El Elyon, and El Shaddai, among other epitaphs. In the patriarchal age, El Elyon was the name of the god whom Melchizedek worshipped and to whom Abraham paid tithes. El Elyon can mean the supreme god or the most high god, El, the highest one, or El, who is the god Elion, unquote. There are only a handful of occurrences of Elion in the New Testament, and nearly all of these are by the author Luke, or one, one of the other ones is found in the book of Hebrews and is actually quoting Genesis. This title is not used in 1st and 2nd century Alexandrian contemporary writings, like the Epistle of Barnabas, Gospel of Thomas, or the Dedoc. So to find it here, in early Sylvanus, is relatively rare. These titles help establish the preeminence of the Father's position in the Godhead, and their use implies that the early author is trying to distinguish the unique nature of God the Father, a topic that will be discussed in more specific de detail later on. Second, early Sylvanus describes God using personal, relational, and intimate terminology. In the first mention of God in Sylvanus, the father advises his son, using a per personal uh, fortress metaphor, to invite God to dwell in his personal camp. Early, quote, Entrust yourself to this pair of friends, reason and mind, and no one will be victorious over you. May God dwell in your camp. <clears throat> may his spirit protect your gates, and may the mind of divinity protect the walls. Unquote. While this passage is clearly metaphorical, it does not seem outlandish for the author to suggest that God can dwell within the walls of one's personal camp. 
to dwell within an inner camp suggests the possibility of a deeply personal and intimate relationship with God himself. This metaphor also implies that it is possible to locate God in space or time independent of the other members of the Godhead. The other mentions of God by the early author build upon this theme of relatability. The son is told, quote, Entrust yourself to God alone as father and as friend, unquote. And that, and he's told that if the son, quote, will be pleasing to God, you will not need anyone, unquote. The imagery of father and friend implies an interpersonal relationship of death, depth, knowledge, love, and respect that is unachievable without an intimate knowledge and shared experiences between two individuals. The remainder of the early text attempts to establish the reasons for desiring such an intimate relationship. God is the exalted one. He is the pupil's first father. And the pupil is, quote, a member of God's household, unquote. The pupil's mind has been created in the, quote, image of God, unquote. And he has taken shape, quote, from the substance of God, unquote. And God is, quote, the spiritual one upon whom the son should cast his anxieties, unquote. The author is explaining to his son that God is his first father, that he was created from the substance of God, and that the son can become a member of God's household, and that God is the son's one true spiritual friend. In short, the son is being told, to seek to know his Father in heaven. Third, while both authors describe God in anthropomorphic terms, it is only the early author that appears comfortable with the concept of an embodied God the Father. The earliest known Hebrew texts describe God in anthropomorphic imagery, i.e. Ezekiel, Genesis, etc. But post Post-exile Judaism consciously attempted to mute these images. Quote, the avoidance of anthropomorphic imagery was by no means a general feature of Israelite religion after the exile. While the tendency away from anthropomorphism marks priestly and Deuteronomistic traditions belonging to the 8th through the 5th centuries, Later works belonging to the priestly traditions continued to transmit anthropomorphic imagery. Non-biblical Jewish literature from the 4th to 2nd centuries, including one Enoch and the Book of Jubilees, represents an additional source of speculation. The anthropomorphic language of Yahweh, other divine beings, and their heavenly realms never disappeared from Israel. The relatively the relative absence of this imagery from biblical texts during the second half of the monarchy reflects a religious reaction against Israel's old Canaanite heritage. Unquote. The New Testament and other early Christian writings do not attempt to mute this anthropomorphic imagery. Rather, they tend to embrace it. For example, every major New Testament author references, references Psalms, 110.1, and the right hand of God. Notably, for our survey, uh, Egyptian Christians were well-known defenders of the concept of divine embodiment. K. 
Catholic author Stephen Webb openly wonders what would have happened, quote, if the monks of Egypt had won their battle in defense of anthropomorphism, unquote. He cites the example of an elderly 4th century Egyptian monk named Serpian, Serpian, who seemed befuddled after being taught the newly decreed doctrine of God's incorporeal nature. When another explained the new teachings to him, he said he understood and agreed to a joint outpouring of prayer. Quote, Amid the prayers, however, the old monk became confused, and he sensed that the human image of God, which he had used to draw before him as he prayed, was now gone. It was gone from his heart. Suddenly, he began weeping in an anguished manner, threw himself to the ground, and cried out, They've taken my God away from me. Unquote. The second Sylvanus author, likely writing in the second century, effectively takes away this embodied God. According to the second author, not only is it not right to claim that God is embodied, it is difficult to even imagine what God's true nature is, and even the angels find it difficult to fully comprehend God. Late. Quote, But we are able to mention what is more exalted than this. For do not think in your heart that God exists in a place. If you localize the Lord of all in a place, then it is fitting for you to say that the place is more exalted than him who dwells in it. For that which contains, for that which contains is more exalted than, than that which is contained. For there is no place which is said to be without a body. For it is not right for us to say that God is a body. For the consequence would, consequence would be that we must attribute both increase and decrease to the body, but also that one who is subject to these will, will not remain imperishable. Now, it is not difficult to know the creator of all creatures, but it is impossible to comprehend the likeness of this one. For it is difficult not only for men to comprehend God, but it's also difficult for every divine being, both the angels and the archangels, unquote. In stark contrast to the simple and inviting terminology of the first part of Sylvanus, the second part describes God in a way befitting philosophers under the influence of Neoplatonism. God the Father is now incorporeal, ineffable, impassable, unknowable, and incomprehensible. Statements like, quote, It is impossible to comprehend what God is like. Everything is in God, but God is not in anything, and God sees everyone, but no one looks at him, unquote, are typical of the second author. In comparing the late Sylvanus text to the writings of Church Fathers Clement and Oregon, Peel and Zandi note, quote, Both these fathers, under the influence of late Platonic ideas, view God as the hidden one, who is known only with great difficulty, because he is above place and time, in name and thought. We can know what God is not, but we can know what God is, but not what he really is, unquote. Likewise, the second part of Sylvanus states, quote, 
for it is incomprehensible and unfathomable to know the counsel of God. Unquote. Furthermore, it is difficult to comprehend him. The pupil is cautioned to not confine the God of all to mental images, or, in Calvin's languages, language, to not project his own inventions of figments upon God. While both authors use the word father to describe God, the early author paints a portrait of a loving parent who seems to desire to be actively involved in his child's life. The second author, however, tends to use the father primarily as a title and certainly does not emphasize the fatherly aspects of uh, parental patronage and love. While the early author prays that God may physically dwell in our spiritual encampment, the late author argues that the notion of God dwelling in a specific place is illogical because that would mean, quote, that the place is that that the place is more exalted than the one who dwells in it, unquote. The second part of Sylvanus repeatedly mentions God 68 times, but rarely uses alternative nomenclature in lieu of this simple title of God. The term God is also commonly used as a prepositional object in phrases such as Word of God, Spirit of God, Scripture of God, Temple of God, Wisdom of God, etc. As will be discussed later, there is also less distinction between the roles of God and Christ in the second part of Sylvanus. The second author allows that we can know God a little through his power and by, by partaking of his truth, but our primary avenue for knowledge of God is through Christ. Christ is now the friend and the one whom we are to know personally. But the author has argued that we cannot truly uh, cannot truly comprehend God. It is clear that when the second author uses anthropomorphic terms for God, he intends a symbolic understanding. Thus, the phrase quote, "hand of the Lord" unquote, is not to meant to, not meant to describe God's physical hands. And a description of Christ as the image of God does not mean God is a physical that does not mean Christ is a physical copy of the embodiment of God, but is meant to represent unity with God's purpose. As readers, however, there is no reason for us to make these same distinctions when the early author, in the context and cons, uh, in the context of and consistent with Middle Stoicism, refers anthropomorphically to the Father. In early 2nd century Christianity, it was contextually, contextually proper to assume that God can dwell with us, that he is a loving and doting father, and that he sits on a literal throne in heaven. It is also contextually proper to assume that God is embodied in a real and tangible sense. Christology Latter-day Saint View Quote Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and the Son of Heavenly Father. He is our Redeemer. Each of these titles points to the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way by which we can return to live with our Heavenly Father. He was the great Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Messiah of the New. Under the direction of his Father, he was the creator of the earth. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, unquote. Calvinist view, quote, 
we have to think of the terms father and son as referring imagelessly imagelessly to the father and son without intrusion of creaturely images or material forms of thought. Perhaps Calvin's most fundamental proof of the absolute deity of the Christ is in the New Testament application to him of the covenant divine name revealed by Moses by God to Moses in the burning bush bush of Exodus 3:14 I am who I am or the tetragrammaton Jehovah Yahweh or an old, uh, older versions of the scriptures Jehovah for it is certain that the name Lord was put there in place of Jehovah or Yahweh the son of God takes what is ours flesh from our flesh bones from our bones that he might be one with us, to impart to us what was his. Specifically, the mediator assumed flesh and blood in order to make the children of men children of God. Unquote. LDS and Calvinist Christology have much in common. Both proclaim Christ as the Lord Jehovah, preach his atonement, affirm the many titles given him in the New Testament, and recognize his role in the creation of the world. The primary differences focus on the question of Christ's divinity. The Latter-day Saint view maintains a clear separation between Christ and other members of the Godhead, while the Calvinist view blurs some of these distinctions. For Latter-day Saints, the process of deifying uh, Christ um, beyond simple New Testament declarations we're taking a step, we're taking a step or too far, too far for our comfort. <laughs> uh, see the example from the Gospel of Peter below. James M. Robinson and other biblical scholars have tracked this early Christian tendency to make Christ increasingly deified over time. According to Robinson, quote, Jesus apparently had no Christology. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Probably he would have preferred we deify the cause, the kingdom of God, unquote. Yet the New Testament authors clearly proclaimed Christ's divinity with preferred titles of Messiah, Christ, Lord and Savior. And so it was clear by the end of the first century that Jesus was viewed as uniquely divine and a member of the Godhead. The church fathers and other Christian writers, first to fourth centuries, <coughs> added more titles to Christ, and these began to impinge upon the distinctive roles of other members of the Godhead. For example, Christ's familiar lament, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Mark 15.34 becomes, My power, O power, thou hast forsaken me, in the second century pseudographic Gospel of Peter. Quote, at first, clear subordination was retained. God for the Father, Lord for Jesus, giving glory to God, who was Christianized, not as giving glory to Jesus, but as giving glory to God through Jesus. But Christological titles, nonetheless, headed in the direction of Chalcedon, and the tradition, the traditional deification of Jesus and subordination, subordination, Donationism uh, ended as a heresy. Unquote. The two authors of Sylvanus illustrate this later tendency 
towards lessening the distinction between God the Father and Christ. While the first author lays out specific roles for Christ within the Godhead, the second author stresses Christ's centrality within the Godhead at the expense of the other members. But before I delve into this tendency, it is worth noting that most Sylvanus discussions regarding Christ, uh, regardless of which portions they are found, would be heartily and universally accepted by both Latter-day Saint and Calvinist readers. Most teachings about Christ found in Sylvanus are non-controversial. The second Sylvanus author, in particular, often echoes the New Testament, which both faiths regard as holy writ. For example, the first, the first words found in the second portion of Sylvanus are late, quote, live with Christ and he will save you, for he is the true light and the son of life. For just as the sun, which is visible, makes light for the eyes of the flesh, so Christ illuminates every mind and the heart, unquote. It is hard to imagine any Christian having difficulty with this allegory. The vast majority of the Christ-related passages throughout Savannah are similar to this one. Affirmations of the importance of Christ to the well-being of the believer. With regards to Christology, the differences, differences between the two portions of Savannah are relatively minor. So what are these differences? First, both portions of Sylvanus write about Christ in a manner uh, fitting to their compositional time periods. Take, as an example, the titles each author ascribes to, type, to Christ, and this is included in Figure 2. The early author, in nine mentions of Christ, employs eight titles, describing him as friend, brother, good teacher, and father. In contrast, the second author mentions Christ 58 times and uses a staggering 38 different titles to describe him. This is indicative of the later time period in which this author writes. According to Vandenbroek, quote, Before Oregon, similar lists are very rare. After him, they are very frequent, especially in the 4th century, unquote. Just to illustrate how voluminous and possibly even superfluous this list of titles is, I've used the Book of Mormon as a comparative text. In 531 pages, the Book of Mormon uses 67 different titles for Christ at a rate of 1 per 0.13 pages of text. The second portion of Sylvanus, in comparison, has 38 different titles of Christ in just 13 pages of text, at a rate of basically 2.9 titles per page. The second author seems especially interested in the metaphor of light as a way to describe Christ. Christ is the sun of life, the light, the true light, the light of the Father, the light of the light forever, the first light, and the light from the power of God. It is important to distinguish that these, this difference between the two authors is more a difference in style than one of substance and does not necessarily illustrate a point of demarcation between Latter-day Saint and Calvinist beliefs. The second difference, however, is more theologically substantive and even possibly dividing. While the Christology of the first portion of Sylvanus defines clear roles among the members of the Godhead, the second portion of Sylvanus 
blurs many of these distinctions. For example, the second portion of Sylvanus refers to Christ as God. The term, the, uh, the written use of the term God as a title for Jesus was not common in early Christian literature. As uh, Bernard Losey explains, quote, It is noteworthy that the New Testament, while in a few places calls Jesus God, usually displays great reserve towards this form of address. The reason for this was the strict monotheism of the Jewish environment, which would not tolerate such a designation, unquote. Quote, we have in Paul one God, one Lord, and one Spirit. I might add that Paul's habit of reserving the designator God for the Father and indicating the divinity of the Son and Spirit in ways unusual other than calling them God straight out is typical of the New Testament generally. This habit, combined with biblical characterizations of the Father as generator and sender, lies behind Christian Trinitarian tradition, especially pronounced in the Greek East, or regarding the Father as God proper, as the source font, as the source or font of the divinity of, of Son and Spirit. The latter two may be fully divine, but they are derivatively so. Unquote. While John 1.1 famously uses the designation God for the Word, quote, and the Word was God, unquote, John importantly adds a Greek article when he says the Word was with God in order to maintain a critical difference between God and Jesus. Quote, the Word is also God, but God without the article, theos. However, the God that is with the Logos is the God, indicated by the article, unquote. These two different designations, God and the God, unfortunately, are lost when the text is translated into, into King James English, simply becoming God and losing the hierarchical distinction. The second portion of Sylvanus blurs many of these important distinctions Many of these important distinctions maintained by Paul, John, and other New Testament writers between God the Father and Christ. First, the late author begins to transfer some of the attributes traditionally associated with God to Christ. Though Christ is supposed to be approachable, he is also, according to the second author, in a sense, quote, unapproachable, unquote. Thus, quote, it is as impossible to look at Christ as it is to look at the sun, unquote. Or, quote, on the one hand, he is comprehensible. On the other, he is incomprehensible in terms of his actual being, unquote. Consider these two texts side by side, one early and one late. Early, quote, except Christ, who is able to set you free, he has taken on that one's devices so that through these he might destroy him with guile. For this is the king you have, who is forever invincible. Against him no one will be able to fight or speak a word. This is your king and your father. There is none like him. The divine teacher is with you at all times as a helper. He meets you because of the good you have within you. Unquote. Late. Quote, For he is light from the power of God. He is a pure 
emanation of the glory of the Almighty. He is the spotless mirror of the activity of God, and he is the image of his goodness. For he is also the light of light forever. He is the eye that looks at the invisible Father. For he is an incomprehensible word, and he is wisdom and life. All living things and powers he vivifies and nourishes, just as the soul gives life to all members of the body. He rules over all with power and gives life to them. For he is the beginning and the end of everyone. He watches over all and encompasses them. Unquote. For the later author, Christ is both the word, Logos, and wisdom, Sophia. And, quote, even if he was begotten, he is unbegotten. Unquote. Importantly, this author also asserts that, quote, God the Almighty, who always exists, was not always reigning as king without also needing the divine son. Unquote. In other words, God could not be God without Christ. This is an idea whose theological implications would require volumes to unravel. Second, the language of the latter text is more predictive of Nicene theology than the early one is. For the second author, Christ is, quote, the pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty, quote, unquote, and is an, is an image of his goodness as opposed to the image of the body of the Father. Notice how the text of the following passage interplays back and forth between God and Christ so that the reader is never quite sure what the distinction between the two really is. Late, quote, everything is in God. But God is not in anything. Now what is it to know God? God is all that is in the truth. But it is impossible to look at Christ as at the Son. God sees everyone. No one looks at him. Unquote. Throughout this passage, it is unclear whether or not the term God is referring to God the Father distinct from Christ or Christ as God. This confusion is because elsewhere, the second Sylvanus author makes a stronger statement about, quote, Christ being God, unquote, than most New Testament authors seem willing to make. Late, quote, know who Christ is and acquire him as a friend, for this is the friend who is faithful. He is also God and teacher. This one, being God, became man for your sake, unquote. Because the only version of Sylvanus that we have is in Coptic uh, form, it is impossible to determine if the author originally intended to distinguish between God and the God, the way that John did. While LDS readers could accommodate this passage based on similar exhortations of Christ's divinity in other scriptures, there would be considerable doctrinal discomfort if the use of the title God here was extended and equalized to phrases like God the Most High, the God, or God the Father, if those were abused for Christ. While both Latter-day Saint and Calvinist theology attest that, quote, Jesus is the Son of Heavenly Father, unquote, Latter-day Saint readers view the relationship more literally than Calvinist readers do, who exclaim, quote, we have to think 
of the terms father and son as referring imagelessly to the father and son, unquote. The second part of Sylvanus conveys Calvinist-like imagery portraying Christ as the Father's emanation, light, and power, slowly rewriting the parameters of what Christ's role as a Son of God means. In short, the distinctiveness between God the Father and Christ is blurred somewhat by the second author of Sylvanus in ways that would tend to make LDS readers and early Jewish Christians Slightly uncomfortable. Wisdom and the Divine Feminine Latter-day Saint View quote, Little has been revealed about our Heavenly Mother beyond a knowledge of her existence. Although we do not worship her, we honor her as a divine parent. Following the example of the Savior, we pray only to our Heavenly Father. We receive guidance and direction from, from Heavenly Father and His Son through the Holy Ghost. Unquote. Calvinist view. Quote, Each God, when considered in himself as the Father, so the Son, so the, as the Son, so the Holy Ghost, the three one God, when contemplated together, each God, because consubstantial, one God, because of the monarchy. Unquote. The average Latter-day Saint and Calvinist worshiper is likely unaware that the question of the divine feminine, typically in the form of wisdom or the Greek Sophia, permeates the study of ancient Judaism and consequently first century Christianity. Depending on the time frame and the context, Bible scholars are divided as to whether or not the most common representation of the divine feminine, wisdom, represents an actual goddess the feminine nature of an androgynous monotheistic god, a hypostasis of Yahweh, a metaphor, or a marginalized teaching of heretics. What is undeniable is wisdom's presence in ancient Judaism and the long shadow that it casts upon scholars' understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Other ancient Jewish texts and early Jewish manifestations of Christianity to better, under, to better establish the context for the forthcoming discussion, it is worth sharing two summaries from scholars about the divine feminine and early Jewish Christianity. James M. Robinson offers a useful summary of how the divine feminine was slowly yet steadily minimized and marginalized during the first few centuries of Christendom. The Hebrew word for spirit, rauch, is usually feminine, though at times it is used masculinely. Thus, in a Semitic world of thought, the triparate deity could reflect the core family of father, mother, and child. But the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is neuter, so that the question became relevant as to whether the third person, the spirit's position when no longer the mother and the core family, is actually a person at all. Since the Latin word for spirit, spiritus, is masculine, the personality of the spirit was thereby assured as well as the all-male trinity. Even though a theologian linguist such as Jerome could point out that the three diverging genders of the noun for spirit show that God has no sex, the metaphorical suggestiveness of the gender of the nouns dominated classical theology. In the Semitic branch of early Christianity, 
the femininity of the spirit and her role as Jesus' mother are made explicit. A parallel development to that which we have sketched regarding the spirit may have uh, been even more significant at the beginning and may be uh, less well known today, since unlike the spirit, the protagonist has faded from the theological uh, aristocracy. Wisdom. Here again, the Hebrew word chakma is feminine, as are the Greek Sophia and the Latin uh, Sampentia. Thus, the survival of wisdom in the top echelon of deity would have assured a female part at the top, which may be part of the reason that, that wisdom was dropped. Wisdom was fading fast by the time the New Testament itself was written, unquote. And specifically, writing about Sylvanus, Jean Zondi argues that the text fits properly in the historical context of Jewish wisdom teachings. Quote, it is a Jewish and Jewish tradition, uh, Jewish Christian tradition that God has a consort. Wisdom takes the place of the Logos as mediator of creation. There is a Jewish tradition of the Holy Ghost as mother. The best known instance is from the Jewish Christian Gospel of the Hebrews, quoted by Oregon, where, quote, the Savior himself says, My mother, the Holy Spirit, took me and brought me to the Tabor, unquote. In the Gospel of Hebrews, the Holy Ghost speaks like personified wisdom in Jewish wisdom literature, so that the Holy Ghost as mother is not far removed from wisdom as mother. Thus, the mother is an element of God. Unquote. The divine feminine as both archetypes of wisdom, Sophia, and the mother makes appearances in the Sylvanus text. By examining the manner in which personified wisdom is treated by the two portions of the text, we can show evidence of the divine feminine fading fast as early Christianity develops. The early author renders a portrait of a divine goddess mother with neither comment nor apology assuming an audience familiar and comfortable with such imagery. The late author attempts to clarify what the wisdom tradition means in a manner consistent with the writings of Clement and other later Christian commentators. In short, by the time we get to the second author, the question of the divine feminine has been settled, and she has been effectively eliminated from the collective Orthodox Christian experience. Echoing Proverbs 8 22 to 30, and other Jewish wisdom literature, the early author gives the following advice. Early, quote, My child, return to your first father, God, and wisdom, your mother, from whom you came into being from the beginning, unquote. According to scholar Peel, in this Sylvanus passage, quote, personified wisdom is called the mother of the pupil, unquote, being addressed, and God and wisdom conjointly are modeled as the pupil's heavenly parents. Another portion of the early author's writing state, early, quote, Wisdom summons you, yet you desire folly. It is not by your own wish that you do these things, but it is the animal nature within you that does them. Wisdom summons you in her goodness, saying, Come to me, all of you foolish ones, that you may receive as a gift the understanding that is good and excellent. I am giving you a high priestly vestment that is woven from every kind of wisdom. Unquote. In this passage, according to Peel, 
wisdom, quote, appears for the first time in a hypostatized attribute separate from the God, from God the Father, unquote. In all, personified wisdom appears four times in the early text. It is difficult not to conclude that the early author is referencing a mother deity with qualities that appear human-like, i.e., she speaks, invites us to come, and desires to bestow gifts. This divine family motif pattern is consistent with early first-century Alexandrian Jewish Christian thought. Philo, a prolific Jewish Alexandrian writer, who is also a contemporary of Christ and Paul, preferred this pattern when describing the divine. Quote, With more or less mythological language, Philo is able to describe the relationship between God, wisdom, and the word in terms of family, God being the father, wisdom representing the mother, and the word being their son. Unquote. The early Sylvanus author clearly parallels Philo's structure. Other Jewish Christian documents, such as the aforementioned Gospel of the Hebrews, do the same. Philo's solution to the problem of how to remedy the logical disparity between the Hebrew requirement for a strict monotheism and a three-member Godhead was to depersonalize the mother and son into the godly attributes, word, logos, and wisdom, Sophia. While Jewish Christianity inherited this need to maintain monotheism, a heavenly mother and a divine son could be possible just as long as both were subordinate to the first father, God the Most High, both possessing divine attributes, but also, like the angels, dependent upon the father's divinity. Second, as the concept of subordination was being actively debated, the later patriotic fathers were then forced to explain the unexplainable. How could there be one God, monotheism, and yet these three separate beings that were fully divine? Their solution, echoing Philo, was to declare Jesus the word of God, Logos, and the logical extension would have been to associate wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God, Sophia, with the Holy Ghost, and thus complete Philo's aforementioned triune Godhead. Instead, however, Jesus was also declared to be God's wisdom as well. So Jesus became both Logos and Sophia. This transformation occurred after the time period of the early Sylvanus author, and it is debatable whether or not evidence of this transformation, Jesus as wisdom, can be found in the canonical scriptures. Analyzing the earliest canonical New Testament synoptic gospels, Hammerton Kelly concludes that, quote, the evidence, therefore, seems to confirm Sugg's judgment that Q did not identify Jesus with pre-existent wisdom, unquote. Paul's essay to the Corinthians has both Christ and the Spirit playing wisdom's roles. But by the time of Oregon, quote, the Son is primarily God's wisdom, his firstborn, not to be conceived of as a divine quality, but as a separate hypostasis. Unquote. In the early 3rd century, Clement of Alexandria refashioned a stanza from the Jewish Book of Wisdom, recasting all of the divine imagery that described personified wisdom into attributes that describe Christ. While the first portion of Sylvanus 
alludes to this book of wisdom several times. The second portion only references it once, echoing wisdom in the exact same place and manner as Clement does. Whereas the book of wisdom states that that feminine wisdom flows from the glory of the Almighty and is the spotless mirror of the power of God. The second Sylvanus author declares that Christ is the emanation of the glory of the Almighty and Christ is the spotless mirror of the activity of God. Therefore, the late Sylvanus author is unequivocally clear with regards to the identity of wisdom. Wisdom is no longer the mother. Wisdom is personified in Christ, and wisdom is no longer feminine. The feminine is no longer divine, at least not in relation to God, except except possibly in metaphorical ways. Personified wisdom is mentioned three times in late Sylvanus, and each time the author stresses that the personification is through Christ. Consider the following three Sylvanus passages. Late, quote, give them life and they will live again. For the tree of life is Christ. He is wisdom. He is wisdom and also the word. He is the life. He is the power and the door. Since he is wisdom, he makes the foolish person wise. She is a holy kingdom and a shining robe. Having much gold, she gives you great honor. The wisdom of God became for your sake a foolish form that she might pick you up, O foolish one, and make you wise. Unquote. Late. Quote. It is he who has come forth from your mouth, the first form, wisdom, the prototype, the first light. Unquote. Late. Quote. For he is an, an incomprehensible word, and he is wisdom and life. Unquote. Not only is Christ's wisdom, he is also the tree of life, an image historically associated with feminine wisdom. See Proverbs 3.18. In this way, the late author is purposely clarifying and correcting the early author's reliance upon Jewish wisdom texts and Philo's Logos and Sophia. Interestingly, the personified mother is only mentioned once in the second portion of Sylvanus. Predictably, this mention also argues that the functions of the mother are actually responsibilities of Christ. Late, quote, only the hand of the Lord has created all these things for his for this hand of the father is Christ and it forms all forms all through it. All has come into being since it became the mother of all, for he is always son of the father, unquote. Thus, with regards to the divine feminine. The differences between the two portions of Sylvanus are substantial and difficult to reconcile. The son pupil is initially taught that he is a child of loving heavenly parents. In accordance with early Jewish Christianity, the son is led to assume that the spirit is feminine, a belief commonplace to the time, but rejected by both Latter-day Saint and Calvinist teachings. Over time, the distinctly feminine qualities of the Godhead dissipate until the second Sylvanus author declares that each of these attributes were actually incarnated in the distinctly male form of Christ, and that two specific and important emanations of God, quote, reason and mind, are male names, unquote. At this point, 
each of these three triune gods is to be considered in himself. The Godhead, Latter-day Saint view, quote, The church's first article of faith states, We believe in God, the Eternal Father, in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. These three beings make up the Godhead. They preside over this world and all other creations of our Father in Heaven. Where Latter-day Saints differ from other Christian religions is in their belief that God and Jesus Christ are glorified physical beings and that each member of the Godhead is a separate being. The Father is the ultimate object of members' worship. Unquote. Calvinist view. Quote, the one true God for whose glory we were, we were created and whom to know is life eternal is one, infinitely spiritual in being, and two, triune in person. Let us not then be led to imagine a trinity of persons that keeps our thoughts distracted. It does not at once lead them back to that unity. Indeed, the words Father, Son, and Spirit imply a real distinction. Let no one think that these titles, whereby God is variously de- designated from his works, are empty, but a distinction, not a division. In order reverently to expl- explicate the biblical doctrine of the triune God, Calvin, in company with the whole Christian tradition, both East and West, finds it necessary to employ a few crucial, crucial non-biblical terms to set forth and safeguard the biblical truth. For such, word, such words as person and homosuasis of the same substance or reality were developed by the church to provide an accurate and balanced explication of the scripture truth of who God is. Gregory refused to use the word origin for any of the Trinitarian persons and taught that to subordinate any person of the three is to overthrow the Trinity. Unquote. A triune God, in some form or another, makes four appearances within the early source text. The first is in the context of parental advice, about guarding one's camp with the words and counsels of God. The speaker petitions, quote, May God dwell in your camp, may his spirit protect your gates, and may the divine mind protect the walls, unquote. Scholar Pearson argues that the divine mind is a reference to Christ. The second appearance is an anti-trinity of sorts. The son is warned against three wrongs, quote, tossed to and fro by three evils. He got himself death as a father, ignorance as a mother, and evil counsels he got as friends and brothers, unquote. Here the triune structure is father, mother, friend, or brother. We know that this anti-trinity is purposely reflective of a triune Godhead because the author explicitly contrasts the negative with a positive one later on. Early, quote, Take for yourself Christ, the true friend, as a good teacher. Cast death from yourself, which has become a father to you. But since you cast from yourself God, the Holy Father, the true life, the spring of life, you have consequently inherited death as your father and ignorance you've got as your mother. They have robbed you of the true knowledge. Unquote. Here the son is told to cast away death, 
which has become a father to you, and accept God, the Holy Father, the true life, the spring of life. He is told to gain true knowledge instead of ignorance, and to cast away these deceiving, evil friends, and take upon himself Christ, the true friend. The final appearance is, it, is, the, uh, is the early author's summary of the triune model. Early, quote, My child, return to your first father God, and wisdom, your mother, from whom you came into being from the beginning. Return, that you might fight against all your enemies and the powers of the adversary. My child, listen to my advice. Do not be arrogant, opposing every good opinion, but take for your teacher the divinity of the word. Unquote. Thus, this triune pattern, Father, Spirit, Wisdom, Mother, Christ, Word, Friend, is repeated four times in the early Sylvanus text. In the context of the late 1st or early 2nd century, we can almost certainly assume that A. Both Christ and the Spirit were deemed as separate from the Father, and B. Both Christ and the Spirit were subordinate to the Father. None of these four descriptions betray these assumptions. In the late 1st century, um, the three person, the, uh, persons of the Godhead were assumed homeosuasis, which means similar substance but not same substance. And Theophilus had yet to coin the word Trinity. James McGrath effectively explains the purview of the ancient world in relation to what strict monotheism actually meant. Quote, There was a common cosmology accepted by nearly all, whether pagans, Jews, or Christians, right through until at least the second century. The clearest evidence is perhaps the statement made by Maximus of Tyr in the second century CE. In spite of all this discussion, one finds in the whole world a unanimous opinion and doctrine that there is one God, the King and Father of everything, and many gods, God's co-regents. So says the Greek, so says the barbarian. There was apparently widespread agreement that there was what might be termed a hierarchy of being, with God at the top, his logo or powers next, and then various or angelic beings, then humans, and so on. Unquote. There are clearly echoes of the ancient world's common cosmology in the portrait of the Godhead presented by the early author. As discussed earlier, the specific role of each Godhood member is also referenced in detail separately by the early author. There are clear role distinctions and subordination between the three members of the Godhead consistent with the late 1st and early 2nd century teachings. The Father is God the Exalted One, and the Spirit and Christ are his subordinate yet divine co-regents. In the later source text, on the other hand, there are only two mentions of the entire triune Godhead. Leading up to the first mention, the author describes an, an invisible God, whose true visible image is that of Christ. Thus, quote, You cannot know God through any means except through Christ, who bears the image of the Father. For this image reveals the true likeness of God in a visible way. A king is usually not known apart from an image. Unquote. Likely written before the Council of Nicaea, the specific, the specific roles of the Godhead 
are somewhat murky in the second author's writings, with Christ assuming many of the functions that the early text ascribed to the other members. The late author summarizes his view of the triune Godhead as follows. Late, quote, This hand of the Father is Christ, and it fashions all things. Through it, everything has come into being, since it became the mother of everything. It is he alone, existing always as Son of the Father. Unquote. This passage was discussed earlier. While the mother makes an appearance, it is not as a fully personified member of the Godhead, per se. It is, it is not clear whether or not the author meant this mention to be representative of the role of the Holy Ghost or not. Instead, it is this refashioning of, refashioning of the Godhead. The emphasis is upon Christ as the linchpin. It is not difficult to envision a path from this text to the creedal faith declaration, quote, the Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten, unquote, found in the Athanasian Creed, written a, sh- a few short years hence. The second mention of the Godhead suggests that the author may have been more sympathetic to the position later espoused by Arius than that of Athanasius. A fundamental issue at the Council of Nicaea was the question of subordination, a doctrine clearly taught in the New Testament canon. The proponents of Arianism struggled to reconcile the concept of three fully eternal and equal gods with scriptural verses that implied the Son and the Holy Ghost were subordinate to the Father. This theological quandary was highly debated throughout the 4th century, with Arianism making a comeback for much of the 4th century. Little known is that after the adoption of the Nicene Creed, the Alexandrian Church returned to a form of Arianism for the next 40 years, as attested by the Rimi Seleuci Creed, which was adopted in 359 CE. Thus, it is understandable that the second author, who likely wrote before Nicaea, had not fully abandoned subordination. The second mention of the triune Godhead gives a specific example of a situation where both Christ and the Spirit are subordinate to the Father. The author, talking about how difficult, how difficult it is to find God, states late, quote, for he, God, is who dwells in every place and in no place. For no one who wants to can know, who wants to can know God as he is not even Christ, or the Spirit, or the course of angels, or the archangels, unquote. In his analysis on this passage, Pearson concludes that the knowledge of God, quote, is denied here even to Christ, unquote, a clear example of subordinationism. Consistent with the time period, the late author vacillates between passages that imply subordination i.e. Christ described as the right hand of God, and passages that blur the subordinate distinction between God and Christ. Consider the aforementioned passage, which quickly pivots from God to Christ and back again. Late, quote, Everything is in God, but God is not anything. Now what is it to know God? God is all that is in the truth. But it is impossible to look at Christ as in the Son. God sees everyone no one looks at him, unquote. It is unclear whether or not Christ is assuming 
his God role in this passage, or if the author is merely describing an attribute that both God and Christ share. But what is clear is that the second author is using the titles Christ and God almost interchangeably, and thus blurring the distinction between these two members of the Godhead. Both early and late authors present their versions of the triune God, I mean, triune Godhead. Members of the early author's Godhead have well-defined roles, are separate beings, and have a subordinate hierarchy. While it appears as if, as if the late author has retained some elements of this subordination, Christ has become the visible image of the invisible Father, with much less separation between the two. The role of the Spirit also appears to have been minimized. Historically, it is slightly too early for a fully developed belief in homosuasis, beings of the same substance, but we can certainly witness the groundwork being laid. Creation. Latter-day Saint View. Quote, Under the direction of Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth. From scripture revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith, we know that in the work of the creation, the Lord organized elements that had already existed. He did not create the the world out of nothing, as some people believe. We are all literally children of God, spiritually begotten in the premortal life. As his children, we can be assured that we have divine, eternal potential, and that he will help us in our sincere efforts to reach that potential. Calvinist view, quote, From this history, we shall learn that God, by the power of his word and spirit, created heaven and earth out of nothing. Although Calvin will argue that the Hebrew term bara should be used exclusively for the creation ex nihilo, he does not depict the subsequent acts as results of second causes. Rather, the creative word of God's works in the primal mass to bring forth the things that God created. Unquote. Three aspects of creation theology are pertinent to this discussion. Number one, the creation of matter ex nihilo or ex materia. Two, the pre-existence of the soul. And three, what it means to be spiritually begotten. All three are discussed to some degree or another in Sylvanus. Unless explicitly stated to the contrary, the historical assumption for the first and second century is creation ex materia vis-a-vis ex nihilo. As David Winston states, quote, the theory of the creation of the world out of primordial matter finds its parallel in the wisdom of Solomon, in Philo, in Platonism, and in rabbinic literature, unquote. Friedman states that, quote, creation of matter in the Torah is not out of nothing, as many have claimed, unquote. And according to LDS scholar Barry Bickmore, Christian belief in creation ex nihilo was not adopted until after the second century of the Common Era. Quote, Christian philosophers of the late second century discarded the early Christian and Jewish idea of creation from chaos in favor of the theory of creatio ex nihilo, as formulated by the Gnostic philosopher Basildus. Unquote. So the shift from ex materio to ex nihilo is nestled between the time periods when the Sylvanuses were writing. Hubler claims, quote, creatio ex nihilo 
marked a major redefinition of the material cosmos by the Christian apologists of the late second century, unquote. Importantly, it is useful to realize that two influential Alexandrian writers of the second and third centuries, Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, held different opinions on this specific question. Thus, it is difficult to ascertain the prevailing thought from when the second Sylvanus author was writing, especially given that his writings were influenced by both Clement and Oregon. Second, the pre-existence of souls was the predominant belief among Jews and early Christians. Truman Matson notes that while there is a dearth of canonical sources explicitly teaching man's pre-existence, quote, early Christian and Jewish writings have accumulated in recent decades. The idea that man himself had a premortal life. One scholar estimates that there are well over 800 references to the premortal existence of the mankind in Jewish and Christian source material, unquote. Third, and less often discussed in Jewish and early Christian writings, is the question of where the soul actually comes from, or what it means anthropomorphically to be considered a child of God. Oregon argues that there was no clearly accepted answer to this question in the early church. Quote, but with respect to the soul, whether it is derived from the seed by a process of traducianism, so that the reason or substance of it may be considered as placed in the seminal particles of the bodies of themselves, or whether it has any other beginning, and this beginning itself, whether it be by birth or not, or whether bestowed upon the body from without or no, is not distinguished with sufficient clearness in the teachings of the church. Unquote. The early portion of Sylvanus includes two lengthy passages discussing, discussing man's nature in relation to his creator. Previously, the son has been admonished to return to his first father God and his mother wisdom that he should desire to join God's household. The author then explains his view of the divine origin of man. Early, know yourself, that is, from what substance you are, or from what race, or from what species. Understand that you have come into being from three races, from the earth, from the formed, and from the created. The body came into being from the earth, with an earthly substance, but the formed, for the sake of the soul, came into being from the thought of the divine. The created, however, is the mind that came into being according to the image of God. The divine mind has substance from the divine, but the soul is that which he formed within them. Unquote. This teaching seems to have much in common with Philo's exegesis of Genesis 2.7 which says the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Quote, the image of God only concerns the mind, the sovereign element of the soul. The first human being was created in a composite nature, consisting of body and soul. He was created mortal, mortal in respect of the body, but immortal with respect of the mind. Because God breathed into the, the soul into him, in reality, a divine breath. Unquote. The teachings that man has been given part of God's substance 
is then repeated by early Sylvanus. Early. Quote, but I say that God is the spiritual one. Man has taken shape from the substance of God. The divine soul shares partly in this one. Furthermore, it shares partly in the flesh. Unquote. There is much to unpack in these two passages. Sylvanus distinguishes, at least in relation to, in relation to man, three creative sources or substances, the earth, the formed, and the created. The body is from the earth, but the soul is from the formed, implying pre-existent matter and creation ex materia, and the mind and the mind. Philo's sovereign element of the soul is from the created. This portion of the soul was somehow created in the image of God and has substance from the divine. Thus, Vanderbroek specifically cites this passage as evidence for an early date of authorship for this portion of Sylvanus. Quote, there is also the idea that the essence of man derives from God. God has taken form from the substance of man has taken form from the substance of God. Neither Oregon nor Eusebius, let alone Athanasius, would ever have said this. Unquote. Whilst Eusebius might never have written this passage, 19th century LDS writers such as Orson Pat, W. W. Phelps, and Brigham Young, contemplating what it means for the soul to be spiritually begotten, could possibly have speculated along these paths. From a Latter-day Saint perspective, it is reasonable to imagine an internal intelligence, e.g. the formed, whose mind, the most important part of that intelligence, is begotten through some unknown process by heavenly parents, retaining a portion of their divine substance through this process. This seems an as adequate an explanation of being, quote, spiritually begotten in the premortal life, unquote, as any I have seen. By the time of the late author, in contrast, a major redefinition of the Christian understanding of the cosmos was well underway, although not yet fully complete. So the latter part of Sylvanus lives in a milieu where creation is effectuated solely by God and his Son, where everything seems to come into being via God's creative acts, and the presumptions of creation ex materia and the pre-existence of souls were actively being questioned and redefined. The late portion of Sylvanus does not focus exclusively on different aspects of creation, but rather describes Christ's role in creation in Christological terms. The most relevant passages are the following. Late, quote, You cannot know God through anyone except Christ, who has the image of the Father. Unquote. And then also late. Quote, Only the hand of the Lord has created all these things. For this hand of the Father is Christ, and it fashions all things. Through it, everything has come into being, since it became the mother of everything. It is he alone, existing always as son of the Father. Consider these things about God. The Almighty, who always exists, was not always reigning as king without also needing the divine Son. Everything subsists in God. That is, the things that came into being through the Word, who is the Son, as the image of the Father. Unquote. There are three overtones from these passages especially relevant to our discussion. First, 
There was a long tradition in early Christianity regarding the actual pre-existence of both the word and wisdom. In the latter passage, however, the author seems to verify Christ's actual pre-existence, but has purposely redefined elsewhere the role of wisdom as Christ. Thus, while the Son is always existing, wisdom role has become the generic mother of everything and is no longer personified. This implies that the wisdom role is no longer pre-existent, but it is a designation applied a posteri by the hand of the Lord after the creative act. Second, if wisdom is no longer pre-existent, then this would also then question the pre-existence of the human soul and the human mind. Third, the late author seems to presuppose creation ex nihilo, while the early author seems to presuppose ex materia. The phrase of interest here is, quote, everything has come into being, unquote. Compare this to the early author's statement that man has three races, earth formed and created. The distinction between these forms of creation you know, have been removed. Um, thus, it is not much of a stretch to take the imagery of the latter part of Sylvanus and, and conclude that, quote, God, by the power of his word and spirit, created heaven and earth out of nothing, unquote. Soterology, Latter-day Saint view. Quote, to be cleansed from sin through the Savior's atonement, an individual must exercise faith in Jesus Christ, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Ghost, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Salvation is conditional, depending on an individual's continuing in faithfulness, or enduring to the end in keeping the commandments of God. Individuals cannot be saved in their sins. They cannot receive unconditional salvation simply by declaring a belief in Christ with the understanding that they will inevitably commit sins throughout the rest of their lives. However, through the grace of God, all can be saved from their sins as they repent and follow Christ. Unquote. Calvinist view. Quote, Faith originates in response to the word of God. Faith rests firmly upon God's word. It always says amen to the scriptures. Thus, Calvin's line of reasoning proceeds like this. One, the purpose of election embraces salvation. Two, the elect are not chosen for anything in themselves, but only in Christ. Three, since the elect are in Christ, the assurance of their election and salvation can never be found in themselves or even in the Father apart from Christ. Four, rather, their assurance is to be found in Christ, hence communion with him is vital. Self-deception is a real possibility because the reprobate often feels something like the faith of the elect. Unquote. It is reasonable to ask the question, why did the monks cherish Sylvanus enough to hide it along with the other documents? One possibility is due to the text's teaching about gnosis, knowledge. Both the early and late authors admonish the son to search for knowledge as part of the salvific equation. Unlike traditional Gnostic teachings, however, this gnosis is meant to be neither secret nor particularly status-enhancing. The son is told to know himself, to illuminate his mind with heavenly light, to control his thoughts, 
and to allow God to dwell in their in his inner temple. Most 21st century Christian readers, regardless of denomination, would generally be comfortable with these themes. Soteriological declarations are frequently found within both parts of Sylvanus um, and are consistent with New Testament teachings and are not especially controversial. Both authors urge their pupil to accept Christ, keep the commandments, do what is good and right, control his control their thoughts, avoid sin, reject uh, their animalistic nature, be humble, and return to the Father. With one notable exception that will be discussed below, the two parts consistently teach the message of salvific self-control. Below are two examples of the fatherly advice given, one early and one late. Early, quote, Put an end to every childish time of life. Acquire for yourself strength of mind and soul. Intensify the struggle against every follow, folly of the passions of love and base wickedness, and love of praise and fondness of contention, and tiresome jealousy and wrath, and anger and the di- desire to avarice. Unquote. Late. Quote, My child, guard yourself against evil. Do not let the spirit of evil throw you down into the abyss, for he is mad and bitter. He is terrifying and throws everything he can into a pit of mud. It is a very good thing not to love fornication, and not even to think about that wretched subject at all, for to think of it is death. It is not a good thing for any person to fall into death, for a soul that is dead will be without reason. It is better to not live at all than to acquire an animal's life. Watch yourself, so that you are not burned by the fires of fornication. Many shooters of the arrow are slaves to it. These whom you don't know are your enemies. O oh, my child, strip off the old garment of fornication and put on the clean and shining garment. In it you are beautiful. Unquote. A singular soteriological theme common to both parts is that overcoming a person's inherent carnal nature. Um, in the early part, the father pleads with his son to, quote, cast out the animal nature with, which is within you. And do not allow base thought to enter you, unquote. In the late part, the second author elaborates upon this analogy with the following caution. Quote, do not become the nest of foxes and snakes, nor a hole of serpents and asps, nor a dwelling place of lions or a place or of refuge of vipers, unquote. Nevertheless, nevertheless, despite all the commonality between the two portions of Sylvanus, There is one interesting difference between the two parts that relates to divine foreknowledge and free will. During the first and second centuries, the prevailing Christian attitudes towards salvation, divine foreknowledge, and free will were hopefully optimistic. Quote, Yet the general prevailing conviction among the early fathers is that man is equipped with a free will and that no sin can effectively keep him from deciding for the good and from avoiding the bad. Unquote. The early church fathers did not question the existence or theological limitations of true free will. Men were free to choose right or wrong. The gift of the atonement is freely offered to all, but the individual choice to accept this gift is based upon the singular purview of the recipient. The early part of Sylvanus thus explains early, quote, My son, 
listen to my teaching, which is good and useful, and end the sleep which weighs heavily upon you. Depart from the forgetfulness which fills you with darkness, since if you were unable to do anything, I would have said these things. But Christ came in order to give you this gift. Why do you pursue the darkness when the light is at your disposal? Unquote. The pertinent phrase here is, quote, For if you were powerless to do anything, I would not have said these things to you. Unquote. Therefore, the pupil is empowered with the freedom to choose righteousness, and if he decides to live in Christ, he will receive treasure in heaven. Notably, he will not be compelled to choose Christ, and if he turns his back to Christ, he will suffer the consequences of this choice. By the 4th and 5th centuries, however, Christian theologians were wrestling with whether or not God's divine foreknowledge implies limitations upon free will. What does it mean to have free will if God already knows what will happen, i.e. predeterminationism? While it would not be until the late 4th century that St. Augustine formulated answers to these questions by arguing for the election of God, the latter Sylvanus author appears to be contemplating some of these same issues as his contemporaries were, thus ultimately helping to lay the groundwork for Augustine. Late, quote, The soul that is a member of God's household is one that is kept pure, and the soul that has, been, that has put on Christ is one that is pure, and it is, in, and it is impossible for it to sin. Where Christ is, sin is idle. Unquote. This, this passage states that it is impossible for any true follower of Christ to sin. While this is a romantic ideal, it has tremendous ramifications upon the doctrine of man's free agency and free will, along with Calvin's idea of self-deception. Recall that the early author had told his son that he has the power to choose Christ. The late author alternatively states, quote, it is not you who will throw him, meaning Christ, out, but he will throw you out, unquote. The implication when comparing these two passages is that one puts the onus on the individual, quote, if you are unable to do it, unquote, while it is Christ controlling the process in the other, quote, he will throw you out, unquote. This is a remarkable difference between the early part's exhortation that one is freely, fully free to choose Christ and the second part's declaration that Christ's power is the prime salvific determinant and that man's desire is ultimately subordinate to God. Another interesting passage reads, quote, this is a late passage, quote, but you, on the other hand, with difficulty give your basic choice to him with a hint that he may take you up with joy. Now the basic choice, which is humility of heart, is the gift of Christ. Unquote. Here, the late author is talking about the faculty of free choice. Zandine notes, quote, In order to strip it, choice, of every trace of merit, it is said that free choice is identical with humility, and that this human doubt Endowment ultimately is a gift of Christ's grace. Unquote. Thus, at least in the hypothetical presented by the second author, it is practically impossible to separate our free choice and the causality of Christ's gift through grace.
Near the end of Sylvanus, the late author makes this fascinating statement to his son. Late, quote, But this divine is not pleased with anything evil, for it is this which teaches all men what is good. This is what God has given to the human race, so that this reason for so for this reason every man might be chosen before all the angels and the archangels. For God does not need to put any man to the test. He knows all things before they happen. He knows hidden things in the heart. They are all revealed and found wanting in his presence. This passage illustrates the paradoxical contradictions underlying the doctrines of agency and God's omniscience. The claim that, quote, God does not need to test man because he already knows what each individual outcome will be, unquote, theoretically impinges upon the concept of free will espoused by the early author. While it is unlikely that the late author wholly contemplated the ramifications of these statements, I am assuming that these ideas are just reflective of his time period, a milieu of theological mulling, which just a few years later would produce Augustine's famous treaty on free will and ultimately Calvin's doctrine of irresistible grace. Unquote. Conclusions By now, I am hopeful that I have effectively demonstrated that because the two portions of Sylvanus stem from two different time periods, the teachings of the early and late authors differ substantively on topics such as the nature of God, Christology, the Divine Feminine, the Godhead, Soteriology, and the Creation. By way of conclusion, I formally summarize the differences and commonalities between the two portions of Sylvanus and Latter-day Saint and Calvinistic beliefs, and then I make some final general general remarks regarding Sylvanus and Latter-day Saint scholarship. Sylvanus, the Restored Church, and Calvinism A few words of caution are in order here, as we examine teachings from the Restored Church and Calvinism side by side, with those of the early and late Sylvanus sources. First, it is important to realize that most biblical faiths are generally able to accommodate canonical teachings that seem a priori inconsistent with their core teachings. Few Latter-day Saints are troubled by the triune formulation found in the so-called uh, Jonani comma, 1 John 5, 7-8. through 8. And Protestants have long learned to treat passages conveying imago Deo uh, metaphorically, e.g. Genesis 1.26. But Latter-day Saints are more doctrinally comfortable when all three members of the Godhead are present at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 6, 7, you know, 16 and 17. And Calvinists are more comfortable with John's declaration that, quote, God is a spirit, unquote, in John 4:24. It is important to emphasize that this analysis will focus more on comfort and not how a particular faith is able to doctrinally accommodate difficult passages. Second, LDS scholars S. Kent Brown, Stephen E. Robinson, and C. Wilford Griggs have each independently and, in my mind, appropriately urged restraint when comparing Latter-day Saint doctrine with the writings from uh, both Qumran and Nagamadi. In a statement I consider representative of the opinions of these three scholars, Robinson preaches caution, quote, But is it not dishonest to represent an apocryphal book as being firm evidence for the truth when it agrees with us 
and yet quietly look the other way when it does not. The truth is that it's just as easy to support Catholicism or Lutherism or Calvinism by proof-texting the Apocryphus as it is to prove our views. It is a matter of which passage one decides to use. Indeed, the Apocrypha do have great value, but not because they teach Mormonism, for by, for by and large they do not. Unquote. Germane to conducting a fair comparative evaluation is the full examination of the complete text, warts and all, not just a selection of hand-picked passages supportive of the pundit's hypothesis. While Sylvanus is not considered a Gnostic text, our comparative analysis should consider the writings of the two Sylvanus authors in their entirety. As I have analyzed Sylvanus, I have not discovered any significant warts that would alter my fundamental conclusion. Latter-day Saint beliefs are much closer aligned with the early Sylvanus author, and Calvinist beliefs are best aligned with the later author. It is also important to realize that the point of this comparison is not to prove or disprove the tenets of any particular faith. Rather, the point is to establish which historical milieu alternative faiths best align with. The two authors of Sylvanus were neither Latter-day Saints nor Calvinists, but I believe they are useful representations of their respective Alexandrian time periods and can, therefore, help illuminate how Jewish and Christian doctrine changed over time. Uh, figure 4 portrays my assessment of the comparability between Latter-day Saint and Calvinist beliefs with the early and late Sylvanus authors. According to this assessment, restored church beliefs are generally compatible with nearly all of the early Sylvanus authors' doctrinal positions. There is only one single notable exception the early author's suggestion that the Holy Spirit is feminine. On the other hand, Calvinist beliefs are generally most compatible with the doctrinal positions of the late author. The only substantial exceptions are the teachings on the Son's subordination of the Father, our inability to know to fully know Christ, and the teachings on the deification of man. Therefore, Within the confines of this one document from Nagamati Codex 7, The Teachings of Sylvanus, we see dramatic evidence of the alteration of Christian belief from a structure that echoes many major Latter-day Saint doctrines to a structure that is almost creedal and much more re representative of the Western Christian tradition. There is a wealth of supporting evidence of this doctrinal change to be found in early Christian writings and history. Yet the uniqueness of Sylvanus is its juxtaposition of these contrasting views in a single text, a veritable microcosm portraying the development of early Christian thought. Towards a Latter-day Saint discovery, warts and all. It seems apparent that the late author was, in a sense, attempting to answer the claims of the earlier author, this is most evident with regards to the figure of wisdom, a topic in which the late author not only responds to the early text, but also recasts a poem found in another Jewish wisdom text, the Wisdom of Solomon, to purposely redefine the role of wisdom and cast the imagery of the divine feminine upon Christ. But he, is also he also responds to nearly every other thematic element in the early text, the nature of God, 
Christ, wisdom, creation, salvation, deification, and the nature of man. Between the 1st and 4th century, Christian doctrine undoubtedly changed, and the two portions of this document highlight many of the relevant theological issues and disputes. Latter-day Saint scholars have yet to discover Sylvanus. The only Latter-day Saint mention of Sylvanus I could find was by uh, C. Wilfred Griggs, who simply refers to its non-Gnostic status. This is somewhat understandable since biblical scholars have only reached a tenuous uh, consensus regarding the dual authorship of the text, and Sylvanus is underappreciated within the body of Nagamati scholarship. My analysis, hopefully, demonstrates that the earliest portions of the Sylvanus text should be of great interest to church members who are interested in understanding early Jewish Christianity. I look forward to er, to further work by Latter-day Saint scholars as they discover this hidden gem. As I conclude my analysis on Sylvanus, the words of Roman Catholic scholar Stephen H. Webb come to mind. Quote, I think of both Mormonism and Calvinism as branches on the Christian tree. Calvinists will protest will protest that surely they are closer to the trunk. But Mormonism actually goes deeper in trying to restore neglected practices and overlooked beliefs from ancient Christianity. Both branches, as far as I can see, bear good fruit, and both return ample nourishment to the tree's roots. But I must admit that the Mormon branch looks to me like it begins closer to the center of the tree, that it is, and, it, and that it is reaching farther toward the light. I would go as far to say this. No other branch of the Christian tree is so entangled in complex and fascinating ways with the earliest and most neglected doctrines of the church, and no other branch extends so optimistically and brazenly upward as it stretches towards a horizon bound only by the cosmic significance of Christ to drop the tree image. If I had to choose between Smith and Calvin, I would unhesitatingly choose Smith. Mormonism is just a bigger set of ideas than Calvinism. Unquote. Using Sylvanus as my guidepost, I share Webb's fascination at just how effectively Joseph Smith was able to locate the earliest roots of the Christian movement. This has been a recording of The Teachings of Sylvanus, A Hidden Gem, by Dennis Newton, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 56, 2023, read by Dennis Newton. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons, Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.